The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 everyday anteater. The following interview with Internet co-founder Vince Cerf is an encore from the fall quarter of 2017. It's an oldie, but it's a goodie. Stay tuned. I have been looking forward to this day for quite a while. My guest is Dr. Vinton Cerf. At UCI, he is currently an advisory board member at the California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology, also known as CalIT2, where the goal is to develop innovative information technology-based products and services to benefit society and ignite economic development. Vint is also a vice president and chief internet evangelist at Google. Yes, that Google. And if you do Google Vint Surf, V-I-N-T-C-E-R-F, you will find that literally he was one of the founders of the internet. And it just recently celebrated its 40th anniversary. That was quite a big bang. So much to talk about. So zot, zot, zot. Welcome, Vint. Well, thank you very much. That's a topic, obviously, I enjoy discussing. So let's explore this history together. Please. And, you know, Vin, could you just briefly give us your background? Were you just a computer kid before there were computer kids? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the answer is that I was interested in mathematics and chemistry and things like that in high school. But I also uh, got a chance to use computers in high school. And, of course, that's very common today, but we're talking 1960. Right. Which is over 50 years ago. And my best friend, Steve Crocker, and I got permission to use some computers at UCLA while we were still in high school. So my exposure to computing came sort of late in my high school period and I think induced a permanent infection because I have had something to do with computers ever since. When did you start getting pretty serious? Did you decide to go to college and, and study that? Was it math or what was it? Well, I, I took an undergraduate degree at Stanford University in mathematics, okay. but uh, while I was there, I took every computer course that I could mm. and subsequently went to work for IBM in 1965. So I had sort of went from being a uh, mathematician to being a computer person. And after two years at IBM, I realized that I really needed more formal training uh, in computer science. And mm. so I returned to college at UCLA to do a PhD. And at that point, I got drawn into a 
project for computer networking that was called the ARPANET, the Advanced Research Projects Agency Network, which is an organization that was formed in uh, October or near, well, ni- in 1958, right after the October 1957 Sputnik launch, which, by the way, was literally yesterday, the, uh, the uh, 60th anniversary of that launch. ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, was created by President Eisenhower mm. to respond to the Sputnik launch. Mm. And so many of the things that happened subsequently were the result of the galvanizing effect that had on the United States and its policies, its educational programs, and everything else. Mm-hmm. So you end up at UCLA, and right. you're getting your PhD. Where does it seem to be going? You know, we, we have IBM, we have big computers and so forth, but you know, do you, are ideas evolving, and, and, and are you seeing an opportunity? What was your thought? Do you remember? Well, first of all, when I worked at IBM, I was responsible for systems engineering for a time-sharing system, which was offered commercially. And this is actually fairly astonishing if you looked at, at it historically, because time-sharing was invented by John McCarthy and others at MIT around 1961. Huh. And so it, by 1965, IBM is running a commercial time-sharing system it's pretty early. So I got exposed to that in its infancy. Mm. At the time I got to UCLA and started working on the PhD, I was focused on multiprocessing, you know, parallel computing and things like that. But uh, the Advanced Research Projects Agency decided to start a packet-switched network experiment and the Network Measurement Center was situated at UCLA in uh, Professor Len Kleinrock's uh, organization. And so I was drawn into this networking project. At that point, if there were any networks at all, they tended to be brand specific. So IBM had their network and Hewlett Packard and Digital Equipment Corporation. So these different brands of computers didn't interwork with each other. Mm-hmm. The Defense Department wanted to find a way to let computers of different types interconnect and interact with each other in a sort of common and uh, consistent way. And they wanted to experiment with this idea of packet switching. So it's very different from the phone system. In the phone system, you dial up another phone and a circuit is created. And that circuit is left up until somebody hangs up. In the packet-switched world, you're basically sending bursts of data like electronic postcards that get switched through the system, sort of like the post office, but 100 million times faster. Mm -hmm. So the experiment was both with the technology of packet switching and also with the interconnection of disparate, otherwise incommensurate computers. And that project was initiated by the Defense Department. The physical packet-switching equipment was developed by a company called Bolt, Baranek & Newman in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Network uh, measurement was being done at UCLA, and there were other academic sites that were part of the ARPA research program uh, that were intended to be part of the network as well. The first four nodes that came up in 19, late 69 were UCLA, UC Santa Barbara, SRI International, and Menlo Park, and University of Utah. Mm. So we had a four-node network by the end of 1969. And that's note, N-O-T-E, four-note network? Four-node, N-O-T-E oh, node. network. Gotcha. Gotcha. Four nodes, okay. right. And at that point, did you know what you had a hold of? Is it like, man, this is going to explode? Or were you were you thinking small? Were you thinking big? What, was it, what were uh, the thoughts? I think at, at that point, we were not thinking huge. We were thinking, how do we get this to work? And in particular, the underlying network 
made up of small computers that were eventually called packet switches. Those were a uniform set of machines that were designed and built by a company called Bolt, Baranek & Newman in Cambridge, Mass. And so one of the packet switches was, was installed at UCLA and the other four at the universities I mentioned earlier. The real challenge here was getting disparate kinds of computers to interwork with each other in a smooth way. And tasks that fell to me and Steve Crocker, my best friend, uh, and several others, John Costello and so on, at UCLA was to figure out exactly what should happen in the computers that were attached to the network. Mm-hmm. How do we let them exchange information in a uh, coherent way? Steve Crocker led that project. It was called the Host-to-Host Protocol Project, and he organized something called the Network Working Group to do that work. He started a documentation series called RFC for Request for Comment, and incredibly, that series is still being edited and published in today, many, many, many years later. Some 8,000 documents have been part of that. So we documented our work on the ARPANET project in that RFC series. So at the time, we, uh, for example, by 1971, networked electronic mail had been invented by one of the programmers at Bolt, Baranek, and Newman, a guy named Ray Tomlinson. So Ray just got this idea that if you could send files between computers, maybe you could label the files so that when they showed up at the other computer, they would go into somebody's directory and it could be like an electronic message. Mm -hmm. So he built a system do that, and as soon as everybody recognized how useful that was, Electronic Mail was born uh, somewhere in the summertime of 1971. So we were using a lot of interesting time-shared technology at that time, including work that was going on at SRI International under a man named Douglas Engelbart, who, uh, if anyone has ever used a mouse on a computer, they owe it to Doug because he invented the mouse in order to allow a user to point to places on the screen in order to edit a document, for mm-hmm. example. Interesting. So we, in the course of developing the applications and the protocols, I think we all had a sense that this was a very powerful technology. But it wasn't until later when the Internet project began that we started thinking in global terms. So what did you, you know, in my mind, you know, as a common man, I, I it seemed like 1998 or something where, you know, I remember my wife coming home from work and saying, Kevin, you got to check this email thing out. It really is, you're going to love it. I mean, wh- when did it start to take off or was it just kind of a slow build, you know, an exponential build in, in your eyes? Well, I think that the general public didn't really start using email until around 1992. That was the time when I started noticing people apologizing that their business cards didn't have an email address on it. Mm -hmm. Those of us who'd been in that world for over 20 years, of course, were thinking, how come it took so long to catch up? There was a small cohort of people using email uh, in the academic community for those 20 years from Mm -hmm. 71 to 92. We had commercial email services I had built one, in fact, in 1983 for MCI, called MCI Mail, but there were others like CompuServe and OnTime and Telemail and so on. They were relatively small, often used uh, only by business people. But by 1992, the World Wide Web is starting to emerge. Tim Berners-Lee does his work at CERN and releases it around Christmas of 91. Mm -hmm. Uh, And not too many people notice that, but Netscape Communications, in fact, 
uh, was created as a result of the Mosaic browser work done by Mark Andreessen and Eric Bina and others at the National Center for Supercomputer Applications in, in uh, Illinois. Jim Clark noticed this and decided that was a big deal. The Mosaic browser was a graphical user interface for the Internet, and he started Netscape Communications in 1993 or 4. They went public in 1995, and, of course, the stock went through the roof and the dot boom was on. So in terms of email, anyway, 92 is the time that I think of when people picked it up. Before that, the people who had access to what we now call the internet were mostly in the academic world and in the defense world. Gotcha. Excuse me for a moment, Vint. I'm speaking with Vint Cerf, who is a UCI technology advisor, and he's also Google chief internet evangelist. Vint, so you have literally spent your lifetime working in this field and and have been working in one area or another uh, as it's developed. When did you come on board at Google? Uh, literally 12 years ago. This is my 12th anniversary today. As we're oh, <laughs> happy anniversary. Yeah, thank you. And has your responsibilities been, has it evolved over those 12 years, or have you been doing the same kinds of work? Uh, well, when Larry and Eric and Sergey hired me, there was this little discussion. They said, what title do you want? And I said, uh, how about Archduke? <laughs> of course, that didn't, that didn't work very well. So they said, why don't you be our chief internet evangelist? Basically, my job is uh, several fold. First of all, I'm in the research department, uh, officially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, however, an awful lot of my work is all about policy. What is the, what is the national policy for uh, Internet-related things, both here in the U.S. and in other countries around the world? And so Google has given me a substantial amount of latitude to work in that area. So policies about uh, domain name system and Internet address allocation fall into that category. Uh, access controls, privacy safety, security, strong authentication, and and increasingly in recent years, worries about content, fake news, for example, and other kinds of malware uh, protections. It's a a very broad portfolio, and I served in a number of senior uh, positions, for example, as chairman of ICANN, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, uh, from uh, 2000 to 2007, president of the Association Computing Machinery, which is a place that we support at Google with the Turing Award, million dollar Turing Award every year as chairman of the board of Aaron, the America's Registry for Internet Numbers on the National Science Board, which is a presidential appointment overseeing the NSF. These are all things that Google has, uh, has seen fit to uh, allow me to do. And in one way or another, they uh, all contribute to this question of where is the Internet? How is it used? How do we increase access to it? How do we reduce cost of access to it? What applications can we supply? How do we localize it so that local languages and local content are available? How do we encourage investment in Internet? What business policies and investment policies make sense to encourage more infrastructure to be built uh, to support it? All those things fall generally into my portfolio. Gotcha. Is Google worldwide? Is is Google in China? Is, is, is it worldwide? Well, Google is worldwide. Uh, we actually still have uh, some services in China, although China blocks a lot of our applications. They block YouTube, for example. They block Gmail. Uh, they block our search engine. So we have the business we have in China is twofold. We still have advertising services for companies in China to become visible elsewhere in the world, in the online world anyway. And we have quite a few programmers there who do work 
for us in a variety of different uh, application spaces. But we are not nearly in as broad a business uh, in China as we are, for example, in the U.S. or in Europe or Latin America. Gotcha. As you were, as these things were developing over the decades and becoming commercialized and so forth, was, you know, some of the the recognizable public names. Steve, did you have interactions with Steve Jobs and, and Bill Gates, of course, or was that a different end of the artificial? No, 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 I, I did, although I, I had, you know, sort of modest interactions with uh, with Bill, uh, more frequent interactions with Steve mm-hmm. and with his, uh, his successor, Tim Cook. You know, I was involved I only, I mean, in, in some sense, uh, with a lot of those people uh, and uh, valued very much uh, the interactions I had with them. How about autonomous cars? Is Google working in that area? Uh, well, the answer is absolutely yes. And uh, we talked earlier about the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which challenged the community, the research community, to build autonomous vehicles some almost, uh, what I think is over 10 years ago. And uh, what is interesting is that that has blossomed into uh, a huge uh, effort across many different companies, including uh, what is now called Alphabet, which is our holding company. So Google is one of the Alphabet companies. But among the other Alphabet companies is Waymo, uh, which is, in fact, building self-driving cars. We've tested them in San Francisco and other places, millions of miles of experience on the public highways. Uh, So the answer is yes, uh, we are very much involved in that. Any idea when it will become commonplace, like the Internet has become Well, I think there's, interestingly, a fair amount of pressure to try to get these things uh, out on the road. There are issues about what, you know, how how do you qualify the car? Is it safe? What Mm -hmm. happens? You know, what liabilities might there be? Right. And I think there is a substantial amount of competition right now Mm -hmm. uh, in different, among different companies to try to get these things on the road. Of course, there's a similar kind of competition to figure out what the legal regime should be for uh, for these things. But I'm anticipating that we will see self-driving cars on the roads. We will already see them, especially uh, in the Bay Area where Google has uh, a fleet of them. Uh, but I don't think we will see them in uh, personal hands for a while, but it could be as early as the next year or two. Wow. How about in terms of Google... The search engine Google, when when I Google something and, and it's, you know, there's a number of things that come up in order. Is that is that all? Is it just a, a pay to play? Is it in terms of number of hits that a site gets? How is that prioritized? Well, first of all, you can't pay to get your uh, natural response, or if you like, the uh, response of the search engine to re- reply to a query to pull things up from the World Wide Web. Uh, is not a pay-for-play. The ordering in which things show up is based on our algorithmic assessment of what's the most uh, useful thing to show you. Mm. Uh, It has nothing to do with anybody paying us anything for that. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, we also put up things that are ad-sponsored, in effect. Mm -hmm. And so those are our advertisements that people have paid us to display, and then we have to figure out, you know, in what order we put up the advertisements. So there's an algorithm for that. It's basically a uh, kind of an auction. Uh, But those are distinguished from the natural uh, responses from the search because it says ad on them, for example. Right. And so that is a pay-to-play Although, interestingly enough, just because you offered to pay Google more if somebody clicked on your ad, you don't necessarily end up first in the list. And the reason for that has a lot to do with other um, assessments that are made, like, has anybody ever clicked on this ad before? 
if nobody is clicking on it, why would we put it up? Mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody else has, has offered to pay us less money but has more frequently had ads that are clicked on, then we might be inclined to put that ad up. So there's a complicated set of calculations that are done in order to decide which ads to show and in which order. If you joined us late, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, an encore edition of the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest is literally one of the fathers of the internet, Vint Cerf. Vint is an advisor to UCI's Cal IT2 department, as well as chief internet evangelist at Google. On today's show, we've been exploring his career and how the Internet originally evolved. We now turn to the Internet of Things. And the Internet of Things, I keep seeing that come up in conversation. I see it in print. Can oh, yeah. There's, uh, it's a, a real phenomenon. Uh, and, of course, it has many uh, aspects to it that worry me and others, especially uh, given that uh, these are devices that are essentially programmable, and the software runs more or less autonomously. And so the reason that the Internet of Things is a little worrisome is that people who write software for these devices turn out to, uh, not all of them turn out to be very thoughtful about safety and security and privacy. Mm. And so you have a bunch of devices with their software running open loop mm-hmm. that are actually in control of things like, you know, the temperature in the house or the security system or the lighting system or the entertainment system or some combination of those things, or maybe the power generation and distribution system. And so when you have a bunch of devices running software that you're not intimately familiar with and don't have any way to intervene in, Then you should start worrying about bugs. Right. And you should start worrying about updating software when you find the bugs. You should start worrying about devices that download malware instead of, you know, an update because Mm -hmm. somebody diddled the the certificate, digital certificate, to make it look like it was a legitimate software uh, update as opposed to malware from somebody. There are a whole bunch of scary things about uh, the Internet of Things that should certainly motivate the people who are providing uh, and designing, building, and, and, and generating or providing these devices to think very hard about preserving the people's uh, privacy and dealing with confidentiality and dealing with safety uh, and dealing with security so only authorized people have access to the information or to the control of these devices. Yeah, you know, as a layman looking in and, and learning about it more, it practically seems impossible. I mean, when human error is is one of the variables. <laughs> um, well, yes, and and in eighty years or so, the people have been programming. We never found a way to absolutely guarantee there are no bugs in the software. Right. But what that means is that we have to find ways of updating the software mm-hmm. uh, in a safe way, uh, so that the device you know knows when it's getting a legitimate update as opposed to some piece of malware. So there's a uh, when you can't be perfect then having a rapid means of remediating uh, is very important. Those are all factors that that uh, go into assessing whether or not an internet of things effort uh, is is um, you know me- meets the kind of criteria that you and I might agree is uh, must be met to make sure that these devices are safe and security is. How about cyber mon- money, Bitcoin? Are, are you looking at that 
area at all? Is that does that? Well, I I tended to run away from it to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, the the problem here this is this is blockchain and its particular implementation of blockchain, uh, which is a distributed ledger. It's intended to allow some party, only one, to sign the next block and attach it to the previous block. Mm-hmm. And then the the chain tells you what the history of the transactions are, so you know where did the money go. Mm-hmm. The problem that I worry about is not whether the blockchain part got implemented correctly, but rather whether the software that sort of holds your bitcoins in your electronic wallet is safe from penetration. Mm-hmm. Because even if the blockchain works perfectly, if somebody can steal your bitcoins, then you know you're out of luck. Right. So there's a lot more uh, to think about in terms of the uh, cryptocurrencies, they're so-called, mm-hmm. uh, before I would be satisfied that we have something that, uh, that can be said to work. And last but not least, Vint, I understand you recently went on vacation. How was your vacation? <laughs> no, it was wonderful. I was in Heidelberg. Uh, oh. And before that, uh, my wife uh, and I spent uh, about three weeks in the UK and in Spain and Barcelona. Oh. Uh, she has a serious case of Downton Abbey disease. And the consequence of that is that we tend to spend several weeks a year visiting stately homes and manor houses in England, in the Cotswolds and uh, other uh, parts of the country side. So indeed, it was a very pleasant visit. Oh, excellent. Vint, it's been such a pleasure. We could go on for hours. I, I hope in the future we have another opportunity. Will you be visiting UCI any time in the future? I'm sure. Uh, uh, well, the answer is that today we just planned 2018. And so I will be in San Diego. I will be at UCLA. Uh, I will be in UC Santa Barbara. Uh, I will be uh, around uh, in various and sundry ways during the course of 2018. Gotcha. So we, we, we may get the opportunity. I'll, I'll be looking for you. Thank you so much for being with us. And we look forward to the next time. Thank you so much. As do I. Thanks so much. It was a great chat. Bye-bye. Thank you again to Internet co-founder Vince Cerf for the time he spent with me back in the fall of 2017 in this encore edition of UCI Conversations. To get his bird's eye view of how the actual Internet developed was amazing. I hope to have him back on the show again in 2021. And now turning the page, coming up next at 5 p.m. is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, where every week Ash books a new guest to discuss common business problems and what to do to solve them. Stay tuned. And don't forget, you can always reach me at kboss at kuci.org. I love to hear suggestions about who to interview next. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, wishing you a very special Thanksgiving this week and encouraging you to recognize all that you have to be grateful for. Since this interview was only 30 minutes, I have a little extra time to play my favorite blues piano player, Fred Kaplan. After Fred's closing theme song, I will play some cuts from his CD, Hold My Mule. Great title. Have a great rest of the week. Be safe, socially distance, and wear a mask. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. So long, everybody.